I have the pleasure of introducing my good friend, Steve. He is the senior pastor of a church in Boston. There he is, he's coming up. He is, yay, Steve. So some of you may remember that I talked about helping found a church in Boston before coming down here. Do we have a picture? Yeah, yeah, that's the church. Uh, founded uh, just north of Harvard in Cambridge up there. Our plaque with your name on it, it's really hard to see, Charles, but it's, it's tucked in there somewhere. Yeah, he's joking, right? <laughs> I don't, yeah, we're, this is the church that belongs to Jesus. We don't do like those kinds of things. But anyway, so, you know, it's really fun. We uh, are good friends and we are basically same in spirit, same uh, we have the same heart for Jesus, same approach to faith and the Bible, and uh, it, this is basically our sister church, the lead pastor there, and I'm just very looking forward to hearing from him. So would you please give him a warm welcome, because he is our own. Well, thanks, Charles, and thank you all. Hey to folks online, too. Uh, it's really good to be back with you. I am um, here with 80% uh, of my family. 80% is like passing score, so not bad, but here with my wife, Grace, and uh, my son, Zeke, who turns 18 in four days. Early happy birthday to Zeke, and uh, my son, John, as well. So good to be in New York with them and with you. We've had kind of a, a very New York weekend. We saw a Broadway show, my first Broadway show ever. Uh, that was fun. They're really talented. I was like, wow, like, there's a reason people come to Broadway. We saw Into the Woods. We saw, like, the queen or president of Pan Am, you know, like the president of Hunger Games, basically, like, on, on stage. It was a very special treat for a Bostonian. I feel like by the time shows get to us, people like that are not around anymore. Like, their backups go on tour, or, or maybe they go on tour, but they've been doing the show so long, they're kind of tired out, and we don't get the same energy. So that was really fun. Um, I feel like being in New York, I'm reminded of how un-New York I am. Um, we stayed on like the 20th floor of a building last night. It's very exotic for a Bostonian. You look out, you feel like you're in an airplane. <laughs> like we don't have that many 20-story buildings where I live. So that's pretty fun. Um, but I was reminded too in the Uber yesterday that this is kind of my ancestral homeland in a way. Like I was talking to the guy and about what home means and is his home New York or not. He's been living here 23 years, he's from Brazil. I was like, oh, I'm kind of from New York, like I'm a lifelong Bostonian, but my, all my ancestors more or less come from this place. I'm grandchildren on my mom's side of Swedish immigrants and Scotch-Canadian immigrants that came and settled in, uh, in this city. My grandpa grew up in Brooklyn when there were farms there, he claims. So I'm like, wow, that's cool. And uh, my, that was my mom's side. My dad's side is... Uh, uh, fundamentalist uh, Christian newspaper reporter that uh, worked just uh, north here across the river in Jersey, and my grandma uh, came to Columbia Teachers College to, from rural South Carolina to be a teacher and stuck around. So I'd be like, oh, I never lived here, but this is like ancestral homeland, so I claim this space, this roots. It's good to be with you. Um, let me pray for us, and then I'll share some things I'd love to share with you today. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who stretched out your arms on a bare wooden cross that all the world could know your loving embrace. We pray that those of us that are gathered in this room here would know the goodness of your loving embrace, that there's a good and loving and kind God who is all for us. 
And we pray that you would be our encourager today and that you would do things in our minds or in our hearts that would help us kind of live more in that flow of greater faith, hope, love, joy, and justice in our lives. Amen. Um, it's been a while since I've, I've been with you all to speak. I was sort of speaking once a year or so. Life got pretty interrupted in recent years. I think it's maybe summer 2019 since I've been with the river. A lot has happened in the past three and a half years. <laughs> a lot of things have happened in the world. Um, a lot of things have happened in my life, too. Grace and I had our 25th anniversary during this time period. I mentioned I have yet... Thank you very much. It's like not fresh, but you don't have to clap, but that was a big deal for us, like maybe a year ago. And then uh, you know, I mentioned that my middle child is turning 18. Uh, my youngest was touring NYU with me. So mainly I realized I'm about to turn 50. I realized, oh, during the past three and a half years, like I've gotten old is what's happened since I've last been with you. I went to the doctor the other day for this kind of nagging shoulder injury that I can deal with, but it, it limits me. It's sort of a, a drag. And uh, we try to figure out where it started, and his conclusion basically was like, you're old. <laughs> so like, you need to stop doing lots of things. Like, wow. So I have gotten old um, the past three and a half years. And I think life just is like that, right? Like it never stops for any of us. It's just kind of always moving. And the whole world, the whole universe is always changing like that. Our experience, the whole world is like that. Last month, I watched a show in a planetarium in Boston's Museum of Science. A planetarium is a place where you go to you know, learn about astronomy or what you can see in the night sky. And I was there because I'd been invited along with some clergy of different faiths for a pre-screening of a new planetarium show that's debuting Boston. It's going to travel about after that. And it's about religion and science. And it looks at the Earth's cultures and creatures, past, present, future, and ask many of these big questions that both religion and science in their own way ask about the origin and nature and meaning of things, like why the earth and the whole universe are the way they are. It's really fascinating. There are a couple of moments in the show that were particularly breathtaking for me. Uh, one was when they kind of represented uh, in this very immersive way the changes in human culture and science over time. And so it starts, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago when humans first managed to control fire and then kind of sweeps you through these changes in technology and culture up through the lightning speed changes of modern human times. And you watch it and you're like, whoa, what an ancient human story I'm part of, and also like, whoa, like how fast has the speed of change become in our era of humanity? There was this other moment in the film too when the film was putting life on earth in the context of the vastness of the whole expanding universe. And the panoramic view of the film kind of sweeps out from some tiny subatomic particle to a human's eye view of the world. And from there out to the whole Earth and the Earth's place in the solar system, and then our kind of orbital life, how it sweeps around amidst this enormous Milky Way galaxy, and then out from there to the millions and billions of known galaxies throughout the whole universe. This is jaw-dropping perspective on how small we and everything we know are in the scope of things. And it's like now that we know all this, I'm thinking, how do we think about, how do we feel about the smallness of our little blue planet in the context of this enormous universe? Like, what a time it is to be alive, to be able to peer into the most infinitesimally small 
bits of matter and at the same time to speculate and be learning about the vastness of the entire universe. I think what a time, too, to be part of a faith in someone or something we call God. And all that we're learning about this wildly complex and breathtakingly beautiful and ever-expanding universe, how do we think about? How do we talk about? How do we worship or pray to someone or something we call God? And how do we do that without being like quaint or nostalgic or kind of closing our eyes and ears to everything we're learning about the universe? Up at my church, Reservoir Church in Mass, where you saw the picture there, we've been working with some material developed by a friend of mine. Her name's Rabbi Toba Spitzer. I collaborate with Toba at a network of Christian Jews, Muslims, labor unions in greater Boston that are all working on social justice together in our city. And Toba is a prominent rabbi in the Jewish religion. She's a leader in the Jewish movement called Reconstructionist Judaism. And that movement is trying to help Judaism change and evolve to meet the context and needs of the times that we live in today. And I love my friend Toba for a lot of reasons, but one of them is this kindred religious spirit I see in her. Because my calling as a pastor, my church reservoir is calling as a church, I think in many ways this church, the river's calling or um, you know, task as a church too, is within our own tradition also like a reconstructionist calling. We want the Christian faith to stay rooted in its ancient and beautiful origins, but also to be large enough and flexible enough to meet the context and needs of the times that we live in, too. So anyway, I'm drawn to her work, and today's talk is influenced by uh, this recent book by my friend Toba Spitzer that's called God is Here. Now, in this book, she acknowledges that so often we and our ancestors have thought about God as some kind of like cosmic king of the earth or the universe, like an old man up in the sky, and that has been a limiting metaphor for God. And so she explores many of the Hebrew scriptures, non-human metaphors for God, like rock and uh, voice and place and cloud and all kinds of other things to expand our view of God. Really great book, God is Here. You can order it wherever books are sold. So in light of these big questions that uh, we speak and think about and, and as we worship or connect with God in the context of our understanding of the universe, I want to talk about the God who's engaged with our universe in this process of ever uh, ongoing rapid change. I want to talk about God as the becoming one. Our scripture takes from the book of Exodus, the third chapter. Moses there is called in the wilderness to lead his tribal people out of slavery in Egypt, and he famously sees this bush which catches his attention. It appears to be glowing, and out of it he has this encounter with God who names God's self to Moses in a new way as the ever-becoming one. The part of the scripture I'll read from Exodus 3 goes like this. But Moses said to God, who am I to go to Pharaoh and to bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God said, I'll be with you, and this will show you that I'm the one who sent you. After you bring the people out of Egypt, you'll come back here and worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, if I now come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they're going to ask me, what's this God's name? What am I supposed to say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. So say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God continues, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, Abraham's God, 
Isaac's God, Jacob's God, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how all generations will remember me. So Moses, in the midst of this encounter, says to God, I can't do this big thing that we're talking about. I'm not good enough. I stutter, all kinds of other reasons. He thinks he just can't do this thing. And God says, I'll be with you, and I will show that to you in various ways. But then Moses is like, how will I know? Like, who are you anyway, God? What's your name? What will I call you? What is, how will I talk about you? What is it that I can say about you? I think these are really deep questions. I think they're questions that we all ask as we search for or wrestle with or live a life of faith. What is God like? When we say the word God, what do we even mean? What are we talking about? How do we talk about this God? How do we pray to this God? How do we think about this God? Well, for Moses and for the first time in history for the people of Israel, there's this divine revelation of this holy, unique name for God. In our English translation, God says, you can all call me I am who I am, and then later that's just shortened to I am. There's this one word, uh, the ancient Hebrew is no vowels, so no one really knows how to say it. A lot of times people say Yahweh. Um, my friend Rabbi Toba tells us that she, when she pronounced it, would say Eye. This name actually shows up all over your Bibles if you have one, but you never see it. A strange thing of translation. Every time in your English Old Testament, the word for God is L-O-R-D, like all capitals, but the capital L is a little bigger, like all caps, small caps. Uh, It's the translator's attempt to do something with this name that they don't really know how to translate, Yahweh or Eye. So it's everywhere. And this translation, Lord, I think, out of respect for this holy, mysterious name, is kind of a regrettable choice because it goes back to that thing Toba is trying to help us get away from. It means something like Lord, like the big boss or the tyrant or this kind of all-powerful, mighty, domineering king in the sky, the master, the one in charge. But that's actually not what this name Yahweh or Eye means at all. Here, the most common translation is I am. Rabbi Toba tells us you can most literally translate the Hebrew here as I will be what I will be. I'm going to be whatever I want to be. Or I'll keep becoming whatever I'm going to keep becoming. So when you see that word Lord all over your Old Testament, try reading it instead as the becoming one. The ever becoming one. It gets really deep all of a sudden instead of domineering. It gets a little bit mysterious, right? The ever-becoming one. What does this mean? Moses is learning that God can't be limited by God's name, that God can't be boxed in. God can't be controlled. Humans have often named our gods to give them familiarity, the familiarity of a divine being that you can appease and that you can hopefully control in time, that you can get to do your bidding. But at Exodus, this God, this God that later on Jews, Christians, and Muslims would say is the most high God, the creator of the universe, or kind of the one real or true God, this God can't be named like that. And this God doesn't want to or need to be appeased. And this God, unlike what most religious practice have indicated over this year, is the, the God, this God cannot be controlled. This God is being, or better yet, this God is ever becoming. If God's name is becoming, there are a couple subtly different ways we can read that. I think both of them are good. It's not like a right and a wrong. One is that God isn't changing or growing, but we are. And so to us, God is ever becoming, or God is ever widening. 
because we are always seeing and learning new things about God. God is so large and so beautiful that neither we nor our descendants could ever stop seeing and learning more. The other way we can see this is that it's actually true. God is still growing in a sense. God is still becoming. Like the universe itself, infinitely large already, but at the same time still expanding. If God is like this, then there are aspects of God's nature or character that never change. So the New Testament defines God in a single word three times as God is spirit, God is truth, God is love. These are things that are always true about God. God is always spirit, always true, always loving. You could add things to that if you want, like God is always just, God is always kind. You get the idea. But in addition to this constant and everlasting nature, God is also becoming because God is in relationship with everyone and everything, like those of us that are gathered here. God has new experiences, and those experiences affect God, and they shape the ideas that God offers back to us for our future. All right, on the side, folks, right now, I'm in this doctoral program in theology. It's called process theology or open relational theology, and so I geek out on this stuff a fair bit. I'm going to try and keep my geeking out bit short here, but I'm going to geek out just for one second if you can hang with me on that. I think that in the 20th century, there are three things that happened in theology that are really beautiful and really important. They are called Pentecostal liberation and process theology. So quick tour through a contemporary ideascape for a minute. Pentecostal theology was born in urban Los Angeles in 1906. People there were experiencing the presence and power of God in what felt like strange ways and their emotions in their bodies and that seemed to open up power in people's lives like power for healing power uh, in their sense of intimate connection with God in prayer power to overcome injustice like for instance in their case to live in interracial communities amidst tremendous segregation of their time and place so the Pentecostal and charismatic movements born of that era are the largest and um, most uh, rapidly growing elements of the Christian religion in the globe today. There's a lot of mess and abuse and unhealth that hangs out in these spaces, but there's a lot of beauty too. And for me, at least, I think some bits of the river too. We uh, live to some degree in the uh, legacy of that Pentecostal theology and experience. So if you've ever felt or you've ever heard someone else say, I think God's speaking to me, and you decide they weren't totally crazy, that's because of this Pentecostal movement. Uh, liberation theology was born in the 1950s through the 1970s as colonial global empires, as racist segregationist states like this one were starting to break up and change, and alongside movements for freedom in Latin America and sub-Saharan Africa and East Asia, within black America in particular, there were these movements of liberation within Christianity that said God is not on the side of oppressive colonists and racists. God is also not only interested in eternal life somewhere in heaven, but God cares about humane, just conditions in this life on this earth. And so God cares about the healing and freedom of oppressed people groups. So it'd be oppressed nations, oppressed racial groups, oppressed groups of sexual orientation, like God is interested in liberation. In the U.S., there was called black theology. In Korea, this movement was known as Minjung theology. In Africa and Latin America, it was most commonly called post-colonial or just liberation theology, um, but all of a similar essence. Super important that God is in solidarity. 
God actually connects most with those who suffer, and God cares about justice, wants us to care about justice as well. So if you ever felt like, oh, the good news of faith in God or faith in Jesus should involve like better conditions for people in this life, you've been influenced by liberation theology. And then lastly, process theology. Um, this was born amongst philosophers and scientists who were responding to like new scientific insights, like Einstein's theory of relativity and what became quantum physics, that the only constant in life and in the universe is change and in movement. There are no like unchanging things or people or substances. So you, me, the air around us, the chairs you're sitting on are all collections of moving matter in relationship. Process theology is this insight consistent with our scriptures that God, too, is always in relationship, that God has experiences that can have an effect on God. So if you go to a musical, like Into the Woods, and you hear him saying, like, you are not alone, no one is alone, and you think, oh, that's not just, like, a nice sentiment, that's, like, actually an existential truth, like, you've been influenced by process thinking. Everyone and everything's always connected. All right. So, uh, God is everlasting. Aspects of God, like God's loving nature, may never change, but in other ways, God is also like a creative partner with us in all of life. God, too, is still becoming. Now, at the very least, our view of God, as I said, keeps widening. Most biblical authors at press would have told you that the earth was the center of creation, and somewhere up high, maybe a mile in the sky, probably over Jerusalem, there was a throne above the clouds, and God lived there, far enough away that we can't see God, but close enough that God could still, like, influence the earth. Just about nobody thinks that anymore. We know the moon itself is like 290,000-something miles from the earth, and in the scope of our solar system, that's still really close. And so we know this whole throne of God in the heavens thing is a metaphor. Our view of God has widened. Uh, That throne is like a metaphor for God's worth or God's power, and heavens is like a metaphor for God's omnipresence. God is spirit, and God is everywhere, and heaven is like wherever the good life of God is made known, is manifest. So at minimum, our view of God like this needs to keep expanding. In our religious traditions and beliefs, we need to kind of keep humble about what we know and open to continued growth and discovery. This is why religions change. It's why each of us personally changes too. People change in our faith in our views, and we can be humble, we can be open, not threatened by that process of discovery to becoming. I want to dial down this idea of becoming to what I think are really practical insights around being spiritual in ways that I'd like to commend to you. The first of them is really practical, but it's got a big word attached to it. It's called apophatic spirituality. A fancy word, but I want to break it down very simply. Uh, There are two types of spirituality that exist, and the fancy word for them is cataphatic and apophatic. You do not need to remember those words, but I just want to tell you the context of the thing I'm saying, okay? Cataphatic spirituality means spirituality with words, so talking spirituality. It's It's about things we can affirm about God or that we can know about God with words and pictures, relating to God through like reading Holy Scripture or verbal prayers or song lyrics or pictures of God in our imagination. This is a lot of what we do. This is most of what Christians do when we talk about God or we try to relate to God and all. And that's really awesome stuff. But apophatic spirituality is like the really necessary and moody cousin to all that stuff. Apophatic means without words. 
Apophatic says every word and image we ever use about God may be partly true, but it's also always going to be partly not true. God may have a throne, but God doesn't really have a throne, right? God may be like a shepherd, but God's not like actually a shepherd, right? Like God's not a person who lives in a field who's tending to sheep all day. And that might be rude if we try to treat people or God like that's what God and people are. God is bigger and better than any words or images we can ever put around God. God will be who God will be. God is always becoming. So apophatic spirituality, this like stopping using our words sometimes, it encourages mystery and humility and sometimes even just closing our mouths. (laughs) Silence. In our postmodern age where deconstruction is very commonly spoken about, very in vogue in our religious lives and lives of faith, we're like, ah, I don't know that everything I was taught or told to believe is really true, and I need to pull that apart and discover what is the truth or what I really believe. In the age of that kind of deconstruction, apophatic spirituality infirms some of our deepest impulses of how we need to relate to God. It's good to be like, I was taught, or maybe my parents were taught, or maybe my fundamentalist grandpa was taught, that like God is Father. And that may be true in some ways. That may be a beautiful or helpful image or metaphor for God, but dang, it could also be limiting if that's like all we've got. If we're like, oh, God is like only a father. Like God is a man, and God privileges male power over all things. Like all of a sudden that becomes a not very helpful insight or thought about God. So we need to both like speak and at the same time unspeak. A statement like God is Father. Actually, anything else we would ever say about God. We can kind of like lean into the truth or helpfulness about that, but also be like, yeah, like it's not 100% true though. Like I can back off that insight sometimes too when it becomes a little dominant or a little much. God is always more than that, whatever the that is. God will always be who God will be. We can't like box God in or control God or contain God. God is always becoming. And so whenever we say or think anything about God, it might be just helpful to have a little like moody, apophatic voice in the back of our head to be like, I know that's not like 100% true, and I can hold that lightly. And even not God, maybe. Sometimes when we're just like deconstructing from faith or we're kind of trying to create some distance from a faith experience we've had in the past, we can move on to other ideas where it may have nothing to do about God, but hold them just as like with as little humility and as much sort of, you know, confidence or arrogance is like we used to hold religious views and even in that too to say like actually whenever I lean into any truth I can hold that with a little humility it's never going to be 100% true I can hold that lightly that's apophatic the other practice that I'd like to commend to you it's one that my friend Toba commends in her book too and it's more than just how we think or talk about God it's like a approach to living well in the world it's a regular practice of radical humility and curiosity about the becomingness of God, but actually the becomingness of every person, thing, and experience we'll ever encounter or have. The practice is actually really much simpler. It's just called, what is this? And really the whole practice is asking that question a lot. What is this? What is this? What is this? The idea is that throughout your day, when you encounter things or experiences, both familiar ones, but also unfamiliar ones, you stop and ask with open curiosity, what is this? Like, I read a verse in the Bible, if I do, about God. And maybe it's something I think I understand, or maybe it's something that I know I don't understand, 
or even troubles me. It makes me confused or angry. And either way, instead of kind of jumping to conclusions or just kind of ending my experience there, I can stop and say, what is this? Right? And then through that question, be open to some sort of new insight or discovery. Be open to the becomingness of God, or in this case, the becomingness of Scripture to me. We're like Moses before the burning bush, right? Before this whole interaction with God, when Moses could have easily just kind of moved along. Like, oh, that's a funny-looking kind of glowy bush. It just kept going, which I expect like maybe Moses had done a hundred times. But this time, for whatever reason, God shows up with some sort of glowy bush, and it kind of gets Moses' attention. He's like, oh, that's, that's curious. Like, what is that? And that opens up this really powerful experience for him. And we, too, can look at any object in the natural or human-made world and ask with curiosity, like, what is this? And that question can open us up to see the possibilities of becoming in all things. Like my dog, for instance. Uh, my family has a new puppy we got in the end of the summer. We were trying to train that puppy. And it's a kind of puppy known for being really smart, which in dog language is kind of code for being really stubborn and hard to train. When my puppy is like standing his ground and not wanting to go where I want him to go, I can get frustrated. I can get impatient. I'm saying this like a hypothetical. I get frustrated, I get impatient, and I want to like kind of yank him along where I want him to go because I'm stronger than him still and I can do that. But that's mean, and it's also bad training, and it won't get us where we want to go, and it'll embarrass me in front of like all the other dog owners. Like, that's such a mean guy. Like, he should not treat his dog that way. So instead, I ask, what is this? What is this dog? What's happening here? And that kind of curiosity can open me up like, oh, this dog's super smart. And this dog has an interesting will of his own, just like I do. That will I need to respect at some level at least. And I'm trying to persuade this dog that I'm wise and trustworthy. That like I'm a person this dog should follow the rest of his life. And I'm trying to do that across a species language barrier too. And like isn't that a like fascinating and complicated dance that we're engaged in? Like, oh, that's really interesting. What is this, right? And if we can do this well, I think, and if we can figure out a way to communicate with each other. I can be worthy of his trust, and he can follow me, and that's going to open up a beautiful relationship we'll have together. That kind of curiosity helps me reframe the encounter in different, more helpful ways. Or like my procrastination. I'm working on a big writing project these days. Mostly, I'm actually really not working on it these days, because big writing projects are, for me at least, long and hard, and they draw out my insecurities and frustrations, and so my procrastination. And so my natural instinct when this happened, as it did one of many times the other day, is to get frustrated with myself, and to get restless, and to give up. Which means I don't get any more writing done, and I also feel worse about myself afterwards. But when I tried, uh, that the other day, I tried to remember, or probably because I was thinking about this stuff, I asked, what if I just asked, like, what is this? What if I can ask the curious, like, what's happening in this experience? And even ask that question in the light of faith, and ask, like, God, what do you see happening here? Is there a way that you can help me move forward with, like, a little more freedom in this experience? And when I did that the other day, I remember that even though I'm 49, I'm still growing too. I'm not done yet. And I remember that oh, God is more compassionate and patient with me than I am with myself, and God might be helped glad to help me grow. And I thought, what if I could be more patient with myself too? What if I can not like hate on myself for the hard time I'm having right now? And what if I can just do the one or two things on this project today that I know how to do rather than the 106 things I do not know how to do and not worry about those parts so much yet? And that helped me do literally like the one or two little things I could do on the project that day, which helped me get like one or two steps closer to this big goal but maybe more importantly, it also is another step towards self-compassion, right? To embracing my life more the way that God does, with less judgment, more curiosity.
So this question of curiosity, like what is this? What a powerful thing in life to live with a little less confidence and judgment, a little more curiosity and humility before everything we encounter. Just ask, like, what is this? What is this? Well, friends, the holiest, the most important name of God in the Old Testament, maybe in the Bible we're told, is this one that tells us God is ever becoming. God is still experiencing new things in relationship with you and me and all creation. And so there's always more to God. There's actually always more to all of life than we can ever yet know or put to words. I think that encourages a big-eyed, childlike wonder that this becoming God calls for, a wonder that helps us keep learning, keep growing, keep discovering all the ways in which God is here. And God will continue to be ever bigger, more beautiful, and more loving than we've ever seen. Let me just pray a blessing for you all. God, could you give us the blessing of this wide-eyed, curious approach to you ever becoming God? Help us live with more open mind, open heart, more curiosity to all the wideness of life and with a little more humble, open-eyed curiosity toward all the wonder of God as well. Amen.